0: Welcome back, listeners, if you listened last week. And if you're joining us for the first time, hello and welcome to House on Fire. If you're looking for a podcast that dives deep into the world's biggest environmental stories, stick around. So this week, we're going to talk about seeds. It might come as a surprise to you. It certainly did to me. The lengths that some people have gone to in order to find seeds and save them for future generations. People have done crazy things, even up to paying the ultimate price which presents a pretty obvious question, why? Why would someone risk their life for a seed? But dig a little deeper and it starts to seem more understandable. It turns out there are excellent reasons. Plants are the foundation of every food chain on earth. Without them, we starve. So making sure that the plants we eat stay robust and healthy in the years to come is actually no exaggeration, an existential issue. So it's no surprise that people who make it their business in life to worry about these things can come to take seed preservation very seriously. And James has been meeting some of them.
1: Hi, Kiara. Yes, I've spoken to quite a few people this week, and we've got all sorts of examples and anecdotes to explore in just a second. Uh, in the meantime, in true journalistic fashion, here's a bit of seed-collecting drama.
2: Sorry, each collecting partner has their own set of challenges. I think in Costa Rica, they had to go across crocodile infested rivers. I think in um, Nigeria, they had Boko, Boko Haram insurgents. There are some regions they couldn't travel to. In Lebanon, there are, there are um, security issues. Also in Kenya, they had, uh, I think it's uh, Al-Shabaab insurgents. Blood would suddenly appear soaking through their shirt and then find, oh, there's a leech attached to you.
0: I'm listening. Who's that guy and what is he doing?
1: That's Chris Cockle, who works at one of my favorite places in the world the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew in London. He was talking there about an amazing project he coordinated to collect thousands of seeds from what are called wild relatives, so basically plant relatives of the crops we eat, sort of like the wolf is a relative of the domestic dog. It's called the Crop Wild Relatives Project, and it took the teams into some pretty hairy situations. So we're going to talk about why they did that, as well as meet a few other people who've done or are doing extraordinary stuff to save the Earth's genetic material before it's all too late.
3: Our house is still on fire.
0: This is Thermopylae. This is Agincourt. This is the Battle of the Bulge. We have to rise to this occasion.
3: The transition isn't going to be easy.
0: Okay, so seed diversity. Where are we going to start?
1: I'm going to have to ask you to indulge me a bit here because I'm going to make my point in a bit of a roundabout way. Um, I want to take a history detour and talk a bit about a chap called Nikolai Vavilov. Chris brought him to my attention in our interview and his life work is a sort of forerunner to the Crop Wild Relatives Project. Uh, But it's also just a breathtaking sad story that you could easily do a whole podcast about on its own.
0: Okay, okay, get on with it then.
1: So Vavilov was a Russian botanist who grew up in a poor rural village in the early days of the Soviet Union. As a consequence, he had seen the impacts of crop failures up close, having lived through famines and food rationing. As you might expect, these experiences affected him deeply, so much so that he devoted his life's work to ending famine. To this end, he cultivated a deep professional interest in agronomy, botany, and genetics – In the 1920s, he had a bit of a breakthrough. He recognised that relying too heavily on certain staple crops was a threat to humanity, since it left us vulnerable to the failure of those crops. Before anyone else, he identified that to make agriculture more resilient and sustainable, humans would need to find and preserve a much wider range of genetic material than just the few crop species we'd come to rely on. So he started going on these dangerous collecting expeditions all over the world, searching for unfamiliar crops. Like a sort of Soviet Indiana Jones, eventually he amassed the world's largest collection of seeds in a seed bank in Leningrad, and in the process, he became something of a big wheel in the Soviet science world.
0: Okay, so what's the punchline? What happened to him?
1: Well, here's Chris Cockle again.
2: Uh, Vavilov got on the wrong side of Stalin and came to a rather unfortunate end. I don't know. I don't know the the whole story, but yeah, he end, he, he ended up in a uh, you know one of one of the Soviet gulags, and actually. You know, As a crop pioneer, he ended up starving to death.
0: Oh, that is a sad story. Did you learn why? Yeah,
1: so it seems he ended up in an academic argument about genetics with another Soviet agronomist, who happened to have the support of Stalin. Unsurprisingly, he lost that argument, at least for the short term, and he was sentenced to death, which was later commuted to 20 years in a prison camp. He died in unclear circumstances a few years later in 1943.
0: Wow. That's pretty rough for a guy who devoted his life to ending starvation. Or for anyone, really. So did he succeed? What became of all of his seeds?
1: So this is where the story gets even more dramatic. The seeds were still in a vault in Leningrad. And at the very moment Vavilov was starving to death somewhere on the banks of the Volga at the hands of his own government, Hitler's army was starving the inhabitants of Leningrad to death in the infamous siege. Now, many precious works of art had been evacuated from the city, but the seed bank's contents hadn't, even though it was later learned that the Nazis were actually intent on seizing them. Inside the seed bank, a team of scientists faithful to Vavilov's goals took it upon themselves to move the seeds to the basement of the building and take turns protecting them. Here's the thing. Despite the intense hunger they must have been subjected to, nobody ate those seeds. By the end of the siege, nine of the guards had died of starvation, but Vavilov's collection was saved, which brings me back to your question, really, because there's no doubt at all that Vavilov and those others certainly did give their lives for those seeds.
0: Okay, so I guess the next question is why. Yes,
1: yeah, so I'm going to refer you back to someone who knows what he's talking about. Here's Chris at Q.
2: What's important about crop wild relatives is trying to capture the the spread of the, the genetics. So, so yeah, these are these are wild species that are related to to our domesticated crops. Um, so the domesticated crops have been like improved in many cases over tens of thousands of years um, to a point where they produce high yields, they're reliable crops, but they rely on a lot of fertilizers. So that makes that well, fertilizers and water, for example, and they that makes them vulnerable to changes in climate, new pests and diseases that come along. Whereas the wild relatives, the crop wild relatives that are related to our domesticated crops have been out there uh, growing by themselves without any inputs from humans with no additional water, no fertilizers, just just wild plants, and in many cases, just more or less weeds. But in so doing, they have evolved um, to survive. And so they are survivors out there in, in the wild. Um, and so if you take some of those important, that important genetic material from the wild species and can breed it using traditional methods into improved crops, then you can come up with a hardier version of a crop that can withstand extreme drought or flooded conditions or more saline conditions that are likely to prevail in the future. For example, uh, carrots, Dorcas uh, species, which is commonly found in the UK, um, is found across uh, temperate regions, um, but there may be properties in some of those locations which are which make those those carrot plants particularly hardy for for a particular reason. They may be drought tolerant or it's important to collect from across the species range.
0: So these crops are basically the wild cousins of the stuff we eat, which is all domesticated. Are the domestic crops really that weak? I mean, we've been eating them for a really long time, right?
1: Yes, so this was important back in the 20s, but a century later, with the effects of climate change getting more obvious, it has become more urgent. The plants we eat might need to withstand very different conditions in the not-too-distant future. And it's not an exaggeration to say that our future depends on it. Hannes Dempwolf is from the Crop Trust and was also involved in the project.
4: So um, the diversity in our crops uh, um, is, is incredibly important because it is basically the, the building blocks of agriculture is, is, is a way of thinking about it. Um, every time you a breeder or someone who wants to develop a new variety, they have to go back to those basic building blocks, so that genetic code, that diversity that is in uh, contained in, in our different varieties and, and wild relatives, to be able to reassemble it and bring in new characteristics um, like disease resistance, you know, drought tolerance, that kind of thing, from uh, a, a diversity of, of, of varieties and breed that into uh, more modern lines that could be used to Uh, you know, grow food in in climate change scenarios or um, all sorts of um, applications. The basic building blocks of life, you know, the DNA diversity that is in those, contained in those varieties um, is incredibly important for that.
1: One way to illustrate this point is to look at how things can go wrong. Enter the cautionary tale of the banana.
4: As you probably know, you know, bananas don't have seeds. Um, As a result, they you know, the way they are uh, propagated or multiplied is through through clonal propagation. You you, you don't go through... um, a seed stage, but you you just make multiple clones, and as as that means that the genetic diversity is very very limited, and there is the the Cavendish banana which absolutely dominates um, global banana production in, in most parts of the world. Uh, but we also know that, that the Cavendish is not resistant to um, uh, several diseases out there uh, that are you know spreading around the world and impacting banana growers in many parts. And so this this uh, fact that we have only one basically variety that's grown everywhere is a huge vulnerability for, for the system because if these diseases spread into these areas um, of high banana uh, uh, production then they could wipe out a whole industry. That is scary to be, to be quite frank. Um, there's a lot of livelihoods that depend on that um, often beyond farmers livelihoods directly but um, you know whole value chains that could collapse.
1: So in the 50s and 60s the global banana industry was almost completely dependent on the gross Michael banana but if you were born after then You may well have never had one because a fungal disease came along and decimated plantations all over the world. The industry switched to the Cavendish, but as we've just heard, the underlying vulnerability of being too reliant on one strain remains. And it's definitely not just the banana. Globally, humanity is dependent on a pretty small number of staple crops. Think about the number of foods you actually eat and how many crop species. The Crop Wild Relatives Project identifies just 29 priority crops. Amongst them, there are things like rice, wheat, and oats. These species have got hundreds of wild relatives though, but at the rate people and climate change are destroying biodiversity, it's not clear how long they'll be around for.
0: Right. So the Crop Wild Relatives Project is basically an insurance policy against our own behavior. Just how much damage are we doing?
4: Have we got any data on that?
1: I asked both Hannes and Chris that question, and it sounds like there's plenty
4: with uh you know our our understanding of genetic code and and how to describe the genetic diversity within uh, varieties and, and different species we start to learn that there is a lot uh, of diversity that has gone lost in the last i would say 100 150 years or so there's different statistics you know i could could quote and there's 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 questions around um you know how valid are they but but a lot of them show you know 80% of uh, uh, losses of diversity for certain crops. and that's not just um, uh, you know minor crops. often that's things like rice in China has lost a lot of diversity. Apples in the US you know, we know that there's one example where there's been thousands uh, of, of var- named varieties in the US and, and nowadays commercial varieties we're looking at a handful. Um, so there's been a, there's been a severe decrease um, of the diversity. Um, and we also know from our seed bank collections that um, you know when, when researchers try to go and recollect where material has been collected um, in the first place, it no longer exists. That is also true for some of the wild species that are related to our crops. There's a lot of habitat destruction that's happening, and there's no question about that. So we are losing crop diversity every day uh, at, a, at a pretty alarming rate.
2: Q runs a state of the world's plants um, report pretty much every year. And a few years ago, I think in 2016, the result of that was the discovery that one in five plants is threatened with extinction. And that, that applies to all plants, including crop wild relatives. Um, and those threats come from a number of sources, you know, well-known sources, as well as extreme climates. There are things like habitat destruction, bananas in Malaysia, for example, being squeezed out by uh, oil palm plantations or you know, things like that.
0: So this is all a part of the bigger story of biodiversity loss then. I know the forum estimates that humans have already managed to do away with something like 80% of the world's mammals and 50% of its plants, which is just heartbreaking. I think you're going to speak to the team who figured that out.
1: Yes, Alexia Simov, who we met last week. She helped put together the report you're talking about earlier this year. The Nature Risk Rising report, which has a lot of detail about the state of biodiversity right now. You'll remember I asked her how we're doing, and it wasn't that great.
3: We're doing an awful job at sharing this planet. As the planet, we're very, very awful housemates here. Um, wildlife has been dwindling in the past years. Um, over one million of species are at extinction of risk. Seventy-five uh, percent, three quarters of the planet are degraded. Um, 60% of populations across vertebrate species have seen a decrease. I mean, the numbers are quite alarming, and science is very clear. Um, We've been doing an awful job.
0: Yeah, I remember. Not at all that encouraging. But that report has a lot of solutions in it, too, as I recall. And ultimately, we're talking about solutions here. I mean, the Crop Wild Relatives Project is a good news story, right? A form of salvage from this bonfire of biodiversity. We're backing up genetic data that we know we are going to need, like putting your important files into a spare hard drive.
1: Actually, that is the language that's often used in the world of seed banking. These days, there are seed banks in almost all countries. Backing up is normal parlance for when one seed bank sends some of its seeds for safekeeping at another. Which is a wise thing to do because sometimes disasters happen.
0: Such as squirrels invade your facility?
1: Hey, it could happen. But uh, there are more likely ones. For instance, seeds need to be kept cool. What if the electricity goes off at your seed bank and the coolers stop working? What if your bank's flooded? Or much more gravely, what if war breaks out and your seeds are vulnerable to being bombed or looted? Which is exactly the crisis that has faced the seed bank in Aleppo in recent years where the Syrian civil war has made it impossible for the facility to operate. Luckily, unlike the scientists who starved to death protecting Vavilov's seeds in Leningrad, those in Aleppo had a solution. They were able to send their seeds to something called the Global Seed Vault, or, to use its more dramatic media nickname, the Doomsday Vault.
0: Right. I've heard of this. In Svalbard, this is the one that's built into the side of a mountain, right?
1: Yes, the very same. Uh, it's had a lot of media attention which i suppose isn't very surprising i mean it's very much like something out of a film Hannes has been there in person
4: the Svalbard global seed vault is, um this facility above the arctic circle in the far far north of norway in this um archi- archipelago called, called, called Svalbard. and um it's it's a place like no other um you're you know it's it, it is above the, the the tree line there's uh, the the place itself you know it's a, in the summer it's a giant gravel pit basically enormous rugged mountains around you and in winter it's it's just you know beautiful with the light also because it's so far north there's only a few hours of daylight um, and uh, it's a, in many ways a magical place um, but then yeah you have to visit this facility which is um, you know built deep inside the mountain um, the the actual vault um, which, has recently been upgraded. Um, the Norwegian government has put quite a lot of effort into making sure that it is um, climate-proof for, for many years to come. And that's where these seeds are stored. A lot of these seeds, you know, they come in boxes. They're never opened. It's very important to know that this is really just a backup facility for, for other seed banks around the world. Uh, and the only person or the, the only one who can access that material is the entity that's been depositing it. And so the there's no sort of year-round uh, activity there. The vault only op- opens two or three times a year when there's new deposits accepted, uh, or in one case, uh, also this, these withdrawals from Morocco and Lebanon that I had been talking about earlier. It, it's, a, it's a surreal experience when you see it. Um, also, when you think about what an enormously diverse place this is in a, such a desolate landscape, it's... It's strange, um, but it is also a really, really important. It's become a really important symbol for the whole, um, you know, movement of genetic resource conservation and, and crop diversity conservation. And that's this, this, this symbol symbolism and this, um, you know, also this attention it's getting globally is certainly something that we're always hoping to redirect to the actual seed banks that are doing the hard work of conserving material every day in the field and you know, under and the sweat and tears. So. Um, Sometimes it's, it's, it's an amazing facility, but sometimes it's frustrating that this is all uh, anyone ever knows. It
0: doesn't sound like a very convenient location. I assume there's a good reason for it being there.
1: It's all about the permafrost. So that will ensure that even in the event of a total power loss, the seeds inside should stay frozen well into the future. And this is a remote enough place that if some other catastrophe happens on earth, the bank will probably survive. And since it contains around a million different kinds of seeds, it'll allow a reboot of the Earth's plants on a planetary scale, if such a thing were ever needed. In the meantime, it's enabled the seed bank at Aleppo to deposit and then withdraw its precious seed reserves to store them in safer locations away from the Syrian conflict.
0: You're listening to House on Fire. We'll be right back after this.
1: I've started to
5: see the spread of misinformation as a global health crisis. It is an infection at the very heart of our democracies. On this week's World vs. Virus, fake news, conspiracies and lies, why the battle for truth may prove even tougher than the fight against COVID-19. We'll hear from the most senior communicator at the United Nations, who's urging us all to pause before we share, and from Mark Little, founder of Storyful, who says we urgently need to improve media literacy to be able to sift fact from fiction. If people cannot trust information about the critical challenges in our world today, whether it's coronavirus or climate change, then we cannot make recent decisions as a democracy. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum. And with a look at fake news and how to stop it, this is World Versus Virus.
0: So there's hope and tragedy here, isn't there? It's tragic that we have to put ourselves in a position where we need something like this. But it's hopeful that people like Vavilov and his intellectual heirs have achieved so much. With the fourth industrial revolution literally unfolding around us, who knows what the next generation of Vavilovs might be able to achieve?
1: Yeah, I think of Juan Carlos Castillo Rubio in these terms, but I've got no idea whether he'd agree with the comparison. He's a Peruvian entrepreneur who is leading probably the most ambitious attempt at biodiversity salvage of this kind that I've heard of, the Earth Bank of Codes. This idea is just huge and not all that easy to explain, so bear with me. Uh, In vastly oversimplified terms, the goal is a kind of high-tech seed bank for all global genetic diversity a data bank that holds the genetic information for all of the world's species, starting with the Amazon Basin. Which is ambitious, to say the least. Juan Carlos says that for difficulty it compares unfavourably with exploring Mars, and it will need some of the same kinds of equipment.
6: So, so imagine you have, uh, we're able to write the Book of Life, which means, of course, sampling biodiversity on land and on the oceans and are able to decodify the codes inside uh, all species in the planet, on land and on the earth. Call that writing the book of life. In other words, we're building, we're writing, we're in the process of writing the Amazon book of life. We, uh, through uh, the use of um, autonomous robots, whether they be submarines, whether they be uh, drones, aerial drones, or whether they be terrestrial rovers, We are sampling, we're capturing elements of biodiversity that have DNA. We're doing the the gene sequencing, the genetic sequencing, uh, and then providing those codes into the Earth Bank of Codes.
0: Okay, so going into the Amazon with robots to harvest genetic data. It all sounds very uh, James Cameron. To what end exactly?
1: Well, the idea is the genetic data that gets harvested can be stored forever, regardless of how many species we subsequently send the way of the dodo. In this sense, it is an exercise in salvage. But like Vavilov's seed bank, it's salvage with human interests at heart. The genetic data is effectively a treasure trove for our species to use to solve all kinds of its problems. Juan Carlos again.
6: These genetic codes are extremely valuable assets, but they're invisible. We need to be able to decodify these codes over time. What is implied by decodifying life on the planet is basically dealing with data, capturing data and making sense of this new data. Think of it as genomic codes just for simplicity purposes. The process of making sense of the book of life by making sense of the data implied in the book of life is a very complex endeavor. But it is a very valuable one if you're able to target the development for the solutions of X, as we've been discussing before. The Earth Bank of Codes aims to make all these codes and data sets openly accessible to all scientists and to all innovators in the world for discovery, so as to be able to develop the science and technology solutions required for X.
0: What's X?
1: Well, that's his way of saying it could be anything it's impossible to know what we might be able to develop from all this undiscovered genetic material. Hopes are high, though, since we know that plenty of very high-impact ideas have come from biological sources. We treat malaria with quinine, which comes from the chinchona tree, and apparently one of our main treatments for high blood pressure comes from pit vipers.
0: Okay. Isn't this a kind of exploitative vision? I mean, what about saving nature for nature rather than for more products? Does this actually help with conservation of habitats, or is it just an exercise in gene harvesting?
1: Well, that actually is the ultimate goal for Juan Carlos. He sees it as a way to save nature by giving everyone a reason to value it more highly. First off, I should say that anyone who wants access to the code bank to develop pure science on a non-commercial basis they're welcome to do so. But also, Juan Carlos reckons the Earth Bank of Codes can generate a multi-trillion dollar economy based on biosciences and the massive potential value of all of those innovations the code bank could unlock. The problem is that historically, when someone's gotten really rich off a new invention from nature, the home country that the nature actually lives in hasn't always seen the benefits. So I mentioned the Chincona tree, which is where we get quinine. Think of Europeans taking its seeds from Andean countries and exploiting them to great effect in other parts of the world, as they did. The same thing happened with rubber trees from Brazil, and again with the stevia herb from Paraguay, which was commercialised after Japanese scientists went there and were shown the herb's properties by the Guarani tribe, who had used it for hundreds of years as a sweetener. Needless to say, the Guarani didn't see any of the multi-million dollar industry that resulted. These are all examples of biopiracy, basically the plunder of one country's biological assets by foreigners for financial gain. In all these cases, the biopirates made a load of money and the countries where they took the biological assets from got nothing. This deprives often poorer countries of much-needed new industries. In recent years, there have been efforts by national governments and the UN to deal with this. The Indian government has won cases against foreign institutions that patented biological resources endemic to India, such as the turmeric plant. But Juan Carlos thinks the Earth Bank of Codes can supercharge these efforts. I'm not even going to try and explain how this works in technical terms, because frankly, I'm about as technical as an abacus. But Juan Carlos says the idea is to use smart contracts and blockchain technology to ensure that if a company develops a new product from genetic data in the Bank of Codes, let's say data harvested from an Amazonian frog, and they go and make billions of dollars out of it, a healthy proportion of those profits filter back to the frog's country of origin and the people who look after its habitat. If enough of that value can be returned to the countries and people that host the relevant biodiversity, then maybe, just maybe, there'll be enough incentives in the system to stop people doing all the things they currently do to destroy natural habitats. Why would you cut down the rainforest if you know it's generating billions of dollars for your community? Back to Juan Carlos.
6: We need to ensure that fair and equitable benefit sharing on commercialization of these codes with biodiverse countries of origin and nature's custodians, traditional and indigenous communities. And the Earth Bank of Codes has the objective of tapping into the commercialization of uh, innovative solutions for X, as we've discussed before, so that a portion of that commercial benefit is directly tapped and kind of uh, directed towards three objectives as i mentioned to you before one to fund traditional communities and indigenous communities because they are the custodians of nature they are the ones that protect nature second is to fund conservation because currently the funding that is available for conservation worldwide in the in the tropics is a very small fraction of what is actually needed but if we unlock a large-scale, multi-trillion uh, bioeconomy using these codes, a portion of that should be able to cover the funding of conservation. So that's the second very large impact that we expect in terms of uh, conservation. And the third, um, and the third, um, which I should have mentioned perhaps before, is related to having, um, uh, you know, not all life is as critical in the sense that there are species that we know uh, ex ante that are at risk of extinction. And so we will prioritize the the genomic sequencing of those species uh, so that we can build better conservation strategies. So there is a red list in the IUCN of species that are at risk of extinction. And so we will focus on them first. So there is quite a lot of, uh, uh, if you will, Uh, impact back into the conservation world. But that's not the only front that we're focused on. We're focused on people, we're focused on a conservation, and we're focused on developing a new economic model, uh, which we call the inclusive bioeconomy model, which can be in uh, harmony with people and nature. Because if we're not able to do that, then the current extractive model that is focused on commodities associated to the traditional industries, that that cause a lot of degradation in places like the Amazon will continue to exist. Ah,
0: I love this idea and I, I really hope it works. But won't there be people who see it as another version of techno utopianism? As in, here's something amazing that has enormous potential in theory, but it's not proven. And the question has to be asked, can we afford to bet our future on highly ambitious technology dependent schemes? I mean, on one hand, I know we need to be ambitious and shoot for the stars, but at the same time, we need practical solutions that work right now. Could we learn a simpler way to protect our biodiversity? Like a culture that values preserving it instead of exploiting it? Or let me put it this way. Instead of trying to salvage biodiversity from a fire we started, can we learn to put the fire out?
1: There's definitely a lot of work to do to change the mindset in industrialized countries where humans are usually regarded as somehow above nature. But for indigenous peoples, the idea that humanity is part of nature is just as obvious. Here's Hindu Ibrahim, president of the Association for Indigenous Women and Peoples of Chad.
3: Human beings need to understand that we are part of the nature. we only one species of the nature. We are not like human and nature. That's what the international concept. We are part of the nature. What is the nature? For me, the definition of the nature is all the species around the world. It is human being, it is animal, it is whatever. So while we are the species of the nature, so the conservation is not like we the human, we do the global conservation. It is the conservation of us. It is us as part of the conservations. So that's the concept I think at the international level they have to understand because now we are the one who is not in balance. We are becoming an invasive species of the planet. When we protect the forest, we are not protecting just because we love the forest, because we love Amazon or because we love Congo Basin or Indonesia. We are protecting because we love ourselves, because we depend on it. This is also uh, the, uh, the beauty of uh, all the indigenous communities around the world. Because when I visit them from the uh, Arctic to Amazon to Indonesia to, uh, uh, I mean, islands uh, to Africa, all my indigenous brothers and sisters around the world, we have something in common. It is our relationship with our environment. You're
0: listening to House on Fire. We'll be right back after this.
4: We have a period of massive transformation upon us, and you don't get these that often.
5: Welcome to The Great Reset, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at how we can build a cleaner, fairer, smarter world after COVID-19. This week, a special episode from the Forum's Pioneers of Change Summit, where 2,000 leaders from government, business and civil society are discussing where humanity can and must make progress.
1: We're kind of the Victorians of the 21st century, building out all this infrastructure that enables us to be prosperous, sustainable and clean.
5: environment economist Professor Cameron Hepburn of Oxford University tells us what he sees as the most important technological innovations and European Central Bank Governor Christine Lagarde strikes a note of cautious optimism about the pandemic.
1: We are seeing the other side of the river but there is a lot of work that still needs to be done. It's still going to be a difficult journey but one of which we see the destination now.
5: Subscribe to The Great Reset wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum and with a taste of the forum's Pioneers of Change Summit, this is the great reset
0: so let's circle back to the beginning why would someone die for a seed the answer to the question is there in the insights that hindu was talking about what vavilov understood and what motivated him and his colleagues who died in the seed bank was much the same thing that all human lives depend on biodiversity nature is not an abstraction or a hobby or something we humans indulge for our convenience rather it is nature that indulges us And as we're now learning, that has limits. So stopping biodiversity loss, whether by salvaging seeds or any other means, is an act of self-care. Voices like Hindus and Vavilovs understand this implicitly. But the rest of us are going to need to grasp it, too, if we're going to keep our home planet a healthy place for us to live. That's a wrap for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Next week, we're talking about growing trees. Specifically, a crazy ambitious project that aims to grow a trillion more trees on the planet to help deal with historical greenhouse gas emissions. Please join us for that. And until then, as always, farewell.